0: Rahim. Ladies and gentlemen, assalamu alaikum and welcome to episode 2 of The Scheme of Things. Uh, this is Zaki.
1: This is Talha Ibrahim.
0: So Talha, how has your fortnight been?
1: Yes, uh, I started this uh, Netflix series, Ratchet.
0: I just finished it myself.
1: Okay, nice.
0: Speaking of Netflix, by the way, unfortunately, all of my good seasons are coming to an end. Uh, I am a big fan of British comedy and uh, my favorite series, including my wife's, uh, we watch, uh, we used to watch Toast of London, featuring Matt Berry.
1: Excellent series, excellent series. I I, I really enjoyed
0: it. You can never get enough of Matt Berry, (laughs) to be honest. And uh, so all my seasons are coming to an end and so I was recently motivated by somebody to install this uh, new app, I won't mention the name, it will sound like a paid promotion but I am not, it's a local uh, streaming app, didn't find it useful, I'll tell you about it later. As far as the topics are concerned, uh, yeah there are uh, quite a lot of topics but uh, we're, I'm going to particularly focus, what I have planned actually is uh, uh, I, the first thing which uh, caught my eye over the past fortnight was this uh, paper released sometime around mid-September by Dhruva Jayashankar and I think uh, some of the viewers may know that uh, Mr. Dhruva Jayashankar is the son of uh, Dr. Subramaniam Jayashankar who is the Indian Foreign Minister, the External Affairs Minister. and who was just formally the uh, Foreign Secretary. And obviously we know that the Jay Shankar's, um, their father, uh, K. S- D- K. Subramaniam, he is known as the uh, doyen of strategic thought in India. He was actually the one who played a key role in developing the nuclear doctrine of India, which still remains quite ambiguous and uh, you know, multi And uh, that paper was basically about uh, Indo Australian Security Cooperation and it particularly focused on uh, military cooperation apart from the strategic angle. Uh, it was published exclusively for uh, the Australia based Lowy Institute. Uh, some people, especially the Chinese commentators, they say that you know Lowy Institute is a propaganda arm of the Australian government, but anyways, um, it's their opinion. Uh, it is titled the Australia India Strategic Partnership accelerating security cooperation in the Indo-Pacific so there are some points over here which uh, I extracted but I have also summarized them and I wanted to discuss and uh, you are most welcome Tala to add your uh, to pause me in between and add your take on it because uh, I'll add some of my comments over there as well so um, interestingly while uh, Dhruva Jayashankar has been a long-time advocate of uh, ACT East Asia policy in the Indo-Pacific, in this particular paper, he has actually tried to point out the discrepancies and the divergences between the Indian and Australian approaches to the Indo-Pacific concept. Very interesting, because you don't find this from someone who has himself remained an advocate, and um, it would be uh, it would not be prudent to say that what Dhruva Shankar is saying reflects the Indian government's position. But we have to keep in mind that his working papers have been carried forward by the MEA in India. So it might reflect some sort of an official endorsement as well to a particular extent. So, you know, for starters, Dhruva writes that for India, the entire Indian Ocean will take precedence. While for Australia, it will be the southwest Indian Ocean in its immediate north and the south pacific so the first thing he points out in that very large paper is that India will obviously concern itself with the entire Indian Ocean the IOR but for Australia according to him it will only be concerned with the southwest Indian Ocean and I think uh, you can see a lot of that going on that Australia isn't too eager to venture into western Indian Ocean I for one have not come across any sort of posturing which could indicate that they have taken an interest in the western Indian Ocean. So, uh, I mean, Japan obviously has, the U.S. definitely, and uh, India as well. And then he summarizes it as follows that there are three factors which constrain bilateral strategic cooperation between India and Australia. Number one, he says mismatched capabilities. Very interesting point. Number two, he mentions asymmetric priorities. And number three, he mentions contrasting strategic circumstances. So... Coming to point one, mismatched capabilities. I'll just quickly skim over it. I don't want to go into detail. Uh, He says that um, India is invested more into carrier battle groups and nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines, SSBNs, which Australia uh, doesn't seek. So, you know, this is educational for me as someone who's been watching the place, and I'm sure this uh, might interest you as well. Australia, while it doesn't have an interest in SSBNs, it doesn't have an interest in carrier battle groups, which of course, uh, our favourite uh, Mr. Rawat was very eager to blow down. So you don't see that happening as well. And then he says that the Indian Air Force has limited power projection capabilities and it is dependent on Russian platforms true Sukhoi and Mig etc. Uh, and he points out that uh, basically. Um, The most unifying factor among Indo-Australian forces is the Special Forces Cooperation. And the large-scale exercises have been difficult, so this is quite an acknowledgement. And he says that he points out that although both countries, India and Australia, have P-8 aircraft for maritime patrols and reconnaissance, but the cooperation is difficult because they don't have a secure communication channel. I think you've been following the news that uh, India and the U.S. are about to sign a BICA, Basic Exchange Cooperation Agreement, right? So they already signed COMCASA. You know why COMCASA is important? Uh, because uh, that enables secure uh, uh, communication between uh, same platforms being used by different armies. So uh, they don't have it with Australia. So obviously when they are partaking in joint exercises or multinationals such as Malabar, you won't see that sort of interaction taking place because of these hindrances. I think this is a very pertinent point that he mentioned that India is dependent more on uh, platforms which are of Russian origin and which do not necessarily conform with Australia's platforms which are more uh, of US origin and European origin. And then coming to the next point, uh, he mentions about uh, asymmetric priorities. He says that for Australia, I quote, the challenge of China relates to its own politics, society and economy. Whereas for India, China is a direct military threat. Very interesting point. Again, you see, it is true that Australia wants to increase its economic cooperation with China. It, the only reason it has been apprehensive is about, you know, uh, because of the US State Department trying to push about uh, Huawei allegedly trying to, you know, create backdoors, and the Chinese uh, allegedly involved In uh, industrial espionage, etc., or trying to create uh, so called sleeper cells on Australian territory. And indeed, Australia does not perceive China as the sort of strategic threat which India does. And obviously, uh, I recently completed this very interesting course by Stimson. They have that strategic chain, it's a link between China, India, and Pakistan. Australia's strategic dynamics are not impacted by whatever China does on the nuclear front. That is also a big point. And then he says that um, for India, defense engagements have taken precedence over economic and trade ties in the Indo-Pacific, particularly after 2012. Uh, thus, Indian engagement with Myanmar or Vietnam has often been defense-led. By contrast, Australia has often placed a higher priority on economic and trade engagement with its strategic partners. Again. I don't need to elaborate this point further, it's uh, crystal clear that he has mentioned a very pertinent point. And uh, coming to the second last point, he mentions about the differing strategic circumstances. So now this is where it gets more interesting. Dhruva Shankar writes that Australia is significantly more dependent on the US for its security and on China for its prosperity than India. Whereas India is much less integrated with the US security structures and supply chains linked to China. Then he says, in Australia, frustrations persist relating to India's inability or unwillingness to seamlessly integrate with US alliance led operational protocols and procedures. I think he is referring to India taking a lot of time, many years to first sign the LMOA and then sign the COMCASA and now, you know, they've taken a lot of time to sign the, uh, and uh, it's still unclear whether they will sign the beacon or not. I think they eventually will. But <laughs> you see, yes. you see where this is going. So India is trying to chart its own course. It's focused on China and that whole two and a half prong war, whatever it is. yeah, is, uh, two front war. While Australia, it is totally dependent on that US led Pacific architecture. Good points. Now coming to. The last portion of his paper uh, which will conclude my segment right now is the way forward according to Dhruva Shankar. You see we may have differing opinions but uh, as a research fellow I admire uh, his uh, efforts to try to uh, postulate a way forward and in his understanding I am actually a long time reader and I admire his writings from an academic angle. This is according to what Dhruva Shankar. are the grey areas that need to be covered so that Indo-Australian cooperation can be further boosted and the impediments can be removed. So first he says that bilateral contacts should be institutionalized with additional 2 plus 2 ministerial dialogues, obviously defense and foreign ministries. Then he says that further coordination in forums such as East Asia Summit, but especially groupings in which India and Australia play leadership roles, such as the Indian Ocean Rim Association, are necessary to advance a common agenda between like-minded partners. So obviously uh, how much of interest Australia will take in Iora? We've discussed Iora a lot, so I won't go into the detail. Then he says that current maritime exercises should be less scripted and cater to contingencies interesting choice of words less scripted yes that is the general impression you are suddenly involving so many players all the quad players into the Malabar you are uh, engaged in uh, cooperation with Australia and uh, posturing naval posturing in the uh, Strait of Malacca near the Andaman and Nicobar Islands you have set your eyes on uh, you had this very very uh, talented Indian uh, researcher who suggested that uh, India should give Australia access to Andaman and Nicobars in exchange for India getting access to Cocos Islands, where Australia has a foothold. So obviously, that whole thing going on. And need I mention just recently, Australia and India concluded their bilateral maritime exercise in the Eastern Indian Ocean. so that thing is also going on. And he says that they should be less scripted. I think that points toward the fact that yes, indeed, all of these exercises seem to be more of a hype or you know the hyperbole trying to give a message to China and trying to show everyone that all of the Quad stakeholders are in place. We saw that recent Quad meeting of the foreign ministers. They were all trying to, you know, say that we all are one. The Quad does exist. And for the first time, you saw the actual term Quad being mentioned in press releases. So that's also something. Then he says closer Air Force and Army cooperation might extend to more regular exercises, refueling and training in jungle and desert warfare. And uh, this is important because, as he mentioned earlier as well, Indo-Australian cooperation has been mostly related to maritime or special forces. So he is suggesting that, you know, jungle and desert warfare, it comes under special operations, but also uh, counterinsurgency. So in that regard, India has a lot more to offer to Australia than the other way around. And uh, that is where the quid pro quo will come into place and Australia can maybe as an incentive offer Uh, superior um, air land, you know, the coastal defense training to India, which it lacks as compared to Australia. And then he says that more active Australian participation in Indian defense industry expositions such as DEF Expo and Aero India can improve potential collaboration. This is the industrial angle, so I won't comment on it further. And lastly, he says, lastly, deepening and broadening trade and economic linkages would add further elements of trust stability and interest in the bilateral relationships. I'm just going to wrap it up here by mentioning what Kashoon emphasized in uh, our other show uh, previously. She talked about Pakistan must look to the east despite many people suggesting that it would be an imprudent move and despite the look Africa policy. So here we have Dhruva Shankar, who has visibility. He has visited Australia several times. He uh, visited the Andamans also and he has good knowledge of the region, he himself is suggesting that India should not just look at Eastern Indian Ocean and the Pacific through the prism of defense, it should build on trade and economics. So I think in a way, you know, uh, he is also validating and reiterating what uh, Kashun suggested in the program and the overall fact that if you have to make your way in the region, Economics and trade will always dominate because whatever the rhetoric being espoused by U.S. State Department, Indian MEA and Australian Foreign Affairs Ministry, they're saying that we want to, even the Japanese, that we give ASEAN the central role in the Indo-Pacific. So that central role will not be defense-led. They are not interested in uh, taking sides. They want people who are investing in their countries.
1: Precisely. Uh, now is my time. Okay. <laughs> so uh, a lot of interesting points uh, you have made, and uh, yes, you have. Drua has made. Drua has made, uh, and you have got uh, uh, this East Asia has come up in in the uh, conversation. So. Uh, Quite interestingly, you mentioned that ASEAN is not interested uh, in uh, being uh, in uh, A- ASEAN is not interested in uh, getting militarily geared up against uh, China. So uh, this 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 aspect uh, has been uh, highlighted in the. Conversations uh, that have been made by U.S. officials. Uh, uh, the, uh, say, uh, say, uh, if I can recall, if I can recall it correctly, uh, we s- uh, saw this uh, in 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 an interview that was given by Pompeo some days back, uh, in the, in which he said that. Uh, uh, in which he uh, said that uh, uh, he, in which he talked about some effective effective multilateralism in the region, uh, in the East Asian region. So that yes. means, so that means that uh, for the United States, ASEAN is a lost cause, uh, and they are uh, his his comment. Uh, is it, it is not that Pompeo has talked about effective multilateralism in the region, last year, uh, uh, a deputy uh, in the State Department, uh, Stephen Biden, has uh, talked about uh, yes s- strong multilateral uh, structures. Uh, uh, there, there is an absence of strong multilateral structures, and there is certainly uh, at some point of time we, we need to formalize a structure like this. Some uh, comments of this sort. So, uh, this means that uh, uh, this, in, in, in the institutionalization context, uh, that is once again mentioned in this paper that you have talked about in the conclusions. Yes. Uh, even the, the, the US officials. Do not consider uh, this is an effective institutionalized arrangement. This this current uh, dispensation between India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, the yeah, Quad, in the Quad, right. the and they uh, are uh, emphasizing. They are now emphasizing on results-oriented, uh, results-oriented multilateralism. So uh, uh, they they are now. Uh, uh, now, they are now more uh, into this mode that the ASEAN na- nations need to uh, need not just speak up but also act up against uh, the against China. And on its part, ASEAN refuses to pick side in this intensified U.S.-China strategic rivalry in which India is also uh, now a major stakeholder. So. Uh, a- Okay, so quite interesting, uh, we saw that uh, some days back, on 6th of October, to be precise, these, uh, the four foreign ministers of Quad countries uh, met in Japan. And uh, I was uh, expecting some, um, some, some concrete uh, conclusions uh, at the end of the meeting. What's your reading about the situation? What happened at the Quad meeting? What's re- your reading about this? Because I think that uh, uh, if something was discussed uh, uh, if something significant was discussed it wasn't brought to the fore so uh, it is perhaps uh, uh, lending more credence to the argument that uh, even uh, this uh, meeting uh, was uh, was didn't uh, didn't uh, didn't result in something concrete. so what's your reading?
0: I personally think I would have to agree with you and I just like to frame it in the sense that uh, I personally think it was indeed more ceremonial than it was uh, cause driven because of the fact that uh, I, you see the whole concept of Quad it started on more than 10 years ago with Shinzo Abe. So I personally think I, I may be wrong this is my personal inference that Abe knew well in advance because, you see, these sort of meetings of foreign ministers and heads of state, they're not held uh, on an ad hoc basis. You need to make uh, uh, plannings in advance, almost a year or a half a year in advance. You have to take the consent and coordinate with all the ministries in the uh, guest countries and find out their availabilities and their schedules. So obviously, I think that since Abe was planning since long to groom the new Japanese prime minister, you Yoshihide Suga, I think the message he wanted to give was that he had in advance planned that once I would be out of the picture and Suga would be in, then there would be a lot of you know, unrest within Quad allies about uh, what is going to be the status of the arrangement between these four countries, the nexus, the Quad. And uh, I think that this, and the fact that it was held in Tokyo, I think it was more of a uh, A reaffirmation that Quad is still here and it was just a reiteration of a resolve and nothing else. And also I would just like to add this very interesting uh, Brookings uh, uh, paper published by, it's not a paper actually, it's a content published by Uh, Miss Tanvi Madan and she published these very interesting infographics and statistics about she identified these patterns most used words from various statements over the years so i wouldn't go into the detail uh, you can google it up i'm speaking to the audience here you can google it up you will come across those infographics and then you'll realize that the pattern shows this one was uh, nothing uh, extraordinary i couldn't also find anything which is extraordinary the uh,
1: the uh, uh, the idea of uh uh, Quad goes back much further, uh, much uh, farther back to the early 1970s. So uh, the original idea was floated by uh, Australia, and uh, no. even even then, Canberra uh, wanted to uh, respond to a supposed Asian conquest plot by China. But even then, uh, like now, uh, we uh, we saw this uh, uh, we saw this despondency by certain poor uh, countries, uh, United States, uh, and even the reading of Thruvas Jay Shankar uh, have some similar uh, conclusions that there is a uniform response from the East Asian countries. Uh, re- regarding how to proceed uh, with the politics of court. Uh, so even at that time, there was a very uh, lukewarm response. Uh, we know that uh, in uh, in even uh, in 1954, we we get this example, and when the C- Seattle was uh, uh, created. To stop the early communist threat to Asia, it had only managed to attract Philippines and Thailand as Asian members. So we are seeing a, 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 yes. repeat, some, a somewhat repeat of uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that 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 uh, that mentality again in the uh, regional politics of uh, uh, regional politics around Indian Ocean region.
0: Indeed. And, um, you know, again, uh, you can uh, you see India, you see the United States, you see Japan and for some reason or the other, which is beyond my intellectual capacity, at least uh, speaking very humbly. I have not been, uh, I've always felt this sort of a distinct relation that India, Japan and uh, the US have this very effective trilateral working relationship while Australia is always you know, just, it's just on the sides. It's like a foster child or something you know you, you don't see it factor in into the whole equation the way those other three countries do especially not only in the military domain but also when it comes to uh, for example trade and commerce or we are talking about people to people relations and when we talk about people to people relations then india and australia do don't we all know that uh, since the manmohan singh era There have been a lot of issues that uh, in which uh, Indians were subjected to racism and attacks in Australia and there was a very disconcerting period going on when even people with uh, other people with brown skin like you and me, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis also they were accused and they were specifically called Indians and you know they were attacked because there was a sense of xenophobia prevailing in Australia for reasons unknown. I haven't gone into the um, Uh, into the uh, sociological aspect of it that's beyond me but you see uh, again that adds into what you were asking me and that further reiterates your own point that this whole quad thing and this uh, you know trying to form an alliance and give a unified message to China I think it doesn't work it doesn't work
1: You're right. In uh, so, fact, uh, uh, I've thought about, uh, I've often thought about uh, getting a survey conducted, uh, uh, taking responses from people in different uh, Asian countries, uh, especially the uh, the Southeast Asian side, even, uh, even to some extent. Uh, the south so the, the South Asian region and Southeast Asian region how do they perceive uh, in India's actions uh, with regards to uh, in, in in inviting and uh, inviting a country beyond uh, Pacific beyond Atlantic uh, yeah, uh, to come and uh, con- to come and be a contestant in in the geopolitics of the region, how do how do common people perceive this? Uh, uh, perceive this? Uh, I am very inquisitive, and I think uh, it be- uh,
0: that is indeed a very good point. And you know, uh, we all know that India's uh, strategic community and its research establishment is far too powerful and more influential as compared to Pakistan's. And uh, you know, remarkably, these people, um, uh, even people such as uh, late Brigadier retired Gurmeet Kamal, who was one of the um, one of the people who drafted the proactive uh, operations doctrine, the Cold Start doctrine, and he was one of the first few um, cronies of the strategic establishment who advocated for coming out of that so-called uh, strategic autonomy paradigm and telling India that you will have to partner with the US uh, for a long term st- sustained relationship and most of his and other thinkers working papers were actually implemented in letter and spirit by the Obama administration. And so that turnaround, I think India has been very successful in trying to uh, mold its uh, national fabric, its communities and its people into accepting that so-called change of heart and uh, that goes to that goes to show a lot of things and i think <laughs> indeed as far as the survey aspect is concerned yes definitely i think that would make for a very good survey interestingly
1: okay so uh we had uh, discussed this uh, prior to this podcast that we uh, shall be discussing um uh, the the the, the 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 development related to uh, the uh, the Dornier aircraft that was uh, given to the Maldives. M- Maldives by
0: India.
1: So uh, so what what is yes
0: yes so so I am going to we are going to shift west from the eastern Indian Ocean. We are coming now. We are uh, moving now to the western Indian Ocean. And particularly this, uh, Maldives is located in what people call the the Southern Indian Ocean and this is the Indian strategic community speaking. So, in fact, I remember very distinctly, Talha, when you were making notes that you were also, you have something to share on Maldives as well. So, in the context of sharing news about Maldives, I have actually two developments. Uh, One is, I'm going to be very brief about it. Uh, Maldives in India have uh, formally recently launched their cargo service which will not only enable people to people travel, uh, but also it will encourage uh, trade and business ties. I'm going to highlight this particular point uh, in detail that um, this whole project, so we're talking about, I'm going to share two aspects of Indo-Maldivian relations and um, the cargo service mm-hmm. Uh, When Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi visited Maldives in June 2019 he announced the launch of this ferry service so it has taken uh, just a little more than a year and uh, it will connect two ports in India with two sister ports in Maldives those two ports are uh, Thutukuti and uh, which is also known as Tutikorin it is in the eastern seaboard so it faces the eastern indian ocean and cochin which is in the western seaboard so these two indian ports will be linked with two ports in maldives namely kulhudu fushi and malay i hope i'm pronouncing the former name correctly and uh, no offense to any Maldivian listening to this so kulhudu fushi and malay ports And uh, both of these are around the Tamil Nadu area and the southern tip of the um, Indian mainland. So one port in the western seaboard, one port in the eastern seaboard, both are going to uh, move southwest to Maldives and connect these two ports. And the objective is that this ferry service will run twice a month. And the benefits for India is that not only has it recently helped the Maldives overcome various natural disasters and provide COVID supplies. Uh, Maldives, for a ma- as a matter of fact, is 100% dependent on foreign imports to keep its country running. So I think if uh, India makes sufficient ingress for its businessmen and trader community to you know, increase the dependability on India as compared to any other country, then that will give it a unique advantage through which it can further incentivize strategic cooperation. And what the Maldivian government has done, because the current government is uh, pro-India, the previous one was pro-China, they have approved a 50% reduction in custom duties for Indian products which arrive at Kuludufushi port. So they have made mutual arrangements to support each other, incentivize, especially the fisher, fisher community, the fishermen, the people involved in the marine economy to uh, promote collaboration with each other, but also people to people ties, I mean, for example, people want to take a trip, go on a a tourism visit or they want to, you know, um, just um, engage in some petty business over there. So they'll just catch a ferry and they'll go into Maldives and vice versa. So I think as far as soft power is concerned, this holds immense symbolic value and The fact that it has materialized just more just within a a year or something, which is quite unusual because the Indian bureaucracy, Talha, I think you know also very well how lethargic they are defense plans and other trade and economic plans. They keep on lying for a decade, a decade and a half until something is approved and finalized. But here you have this thing being so uh, extraordinarily sped up that it does goes to show you how committed and focused India is on Maldives. Speaking of focus, the next and final point on this uh, topic from my side is that India provided a Donia maritime surveillance aircraft to the Maldives National Defense Force. The objective reportedly according to what the media has said is to keep a closer eye on, I quote, the movement of Chinese vessels in regional waters, unquote. The reports go on to add that the Donia aircraft will operate under the command and control of Maldives, while the running costs, the operational costs, will be borne by India. So basically, it's just, you know, and there is a saying in Pakistani: there's a saying, Aap kaan se ya se if you can, it doesn't matter whether you hold your ear from the left side or the right side, you're holding the ear. So even if Maldives is going to spearhead you're giving them the control but the fact that India is going to be financing it uh, you know the buck stops where the person who is paying the buck so if India will decide how and when the maneuvering of that aircraft will be what sort of flight missions it will carry the reconnaissance missions it is going to conduct what sort of uh, flight path it is supposed to chart all of that I think ultimately is going to be decided by the Indian Navy and uh, this is not just for, to be fair, it's not just for strategic operations, but also to complement medical evacuation operations. So obviously there's that uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief aspect as well. But interestingly, uh, the mo- final conclu- uh, point over here is, you might say that uh, India is trying to push Maldives into get, getting this down here. In fact, the it's the opposite. Uh, Maldivian President Abdullah Yameen, when he visited India in 2016, it was actually he who requested India for this aircraft. Was China not adamant on giving one? Did Maldives approach any other government? I don't know. I haven't come across any other such literature. But the fact that um, the Maldives was hoping and ultimately it got what it wanted. And uh, media reports say the objective is to keep watch on China. So, breaking news for Pakistan, or rather, not breaking news. Maldives is near uh, Lakshadweep the, and uh, Minico Islands, and you have East Africa to the left. You have the Gwadar and all to the north. So obviously, we are not talking about Andaman and Nicobar, or you know the traditional posturing in the SCS or this and that. You won't expect Maldivian aircraft to fly thousands of miles to the eastern Indian Ocean to keep a, keep an eye on China. Obviously. They're talking about the Western Indian Ocean and the Indian Navy having having its bases FOBs in the uh, Lakshadweep. You're going to see uh, maybe uh, in the mid to long term future, you'll see Maldivian aircraft uh, carrying out uh, landing and takeoff exercises from Lakshadweep. Uh, That is something which I think is going to happen in the mid to long term future. But uh, this is just a speculation and uh, we'll wait and see how much of that. But finally, I think if nothing else, at least these aircraft will be able to provide more accurate naval intelligence to Indian Navy when China, you know, the PLA Navy once or twice, uh, once in a year or once in two years when it comes into the Western Indian Ocean and it irks New Delhi. So it will be able to track the Chinese submarines more effectively.
1: Okay, so uh, quite uh, interestingly, uh, my observation uh, about what's happening in Maldives uh, vis-a-vis India is quite different. So uh, uh, we are talking about just recent past, uh, there was a Twitter hashtag uh, that uh on, uh on on the Maldivian uh, uh, the uh, Twitter hashtag the candidate of Maldives, India Out. Uh, oh, it was
0: in interesting.
1: India out. So th- there is uh there there is a, a dissent fomenting uh among uh, among the public and uh, the Maldivians are uh, protesting. Quite uh, vociferously against India's military presence in their ally nation. Um,
0: Interesting. Interesting.
1: There was, this, there was this hashtag that came out. Uh, there was a motorbike rally that happened, uh, and uh, according to the news reports, it was the second such event in recent weeks to protest against India's military presence on Maldivian soil. Uh, so now uh, uh, you talked about the you talked about ferry service. You talked about uh, the Donier aircraft that has been provided to the Maldivian uh, Air Force, um, but uh, the people are uh, uh, people are very much uh, uh, perceiving it uh, in, in a very negative manner. Uh, the way uh, India has, uh, the, the, the current incumbent government of, uh, I guess, uh, the, the present name is Ibrahim Omoswali, okay, the present name is Ibrahim Omoswali, so, uh, so, so the Sole government has uh, formalized a new agreement in which uh, uh, the, it will allow the Indian courts to adjudicate mm-hmm. on issues in Maldives that impact on Indian economic interest, so... Uh, wow, even wow. I didn't know that. So even this is not being uh, perceived uh, uh, in a friendly manner uh, by the Maldivian people and India is apparently insisting on India has apparently insisted on this agreement uh, because uh, uh, earlier uh, back in 2012 uh, uh, a minister in the early Maldivian government, uh, Hussein Sharif, has uh, given has given a quote to a certain newspaper that the Maldivian government annulled uh, uh, annulled, uh an agreement related to Indian invested airport. So uh, we need to watch Maldives more closely. Uh, uh, there, the even. Uh, even the, uh, even the, 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 the journalist uh, uh, community has uh, recently uh, inquired from the Speaker of the Maldivian Parliament, Mohan Nasheed, he is first, he's considered as pro-India.
0: Oh, definitely, he's very pro-India. He's
1: very pro-India. In fact, his first
0: regime was installed by New Delhi.
1: Yes. So, uh, in his interview, uh, to, uh, to, to the press, he's talked about how the uh, India out hashtag, the social media tagline of India out was being used predominantly by foreigners. And, uh, <laughs> typical. <laughs> okay.
0: typical, typical,
1: and and a and very, uh, and, I found, and I found it very comical he said that uh, it is a characteristics of developed nations to have military personnel of other nations
0: <laughs> wow wow so what is uh, mr Nasheed suggesting does he want uh, the us or india to does he want india to replicate the us model of you know entrenching itself in sri lanka the way uh, the uh, uh, sri lanka was quickly you know uh, persuaded into signing the AXA and U.S. has practically taken over its facilities without any question or uh, some sort of uh, uh, legal obligations and liabilities. So what is he expecting? You know, you know, that's what I was, I was just going to comment this out of a joke, but now that you've mentioned it, it gets even more funnier and now it's become more ironic because if they're talking about foreign actors, isn't India a foreign actor? Of course it is. Yes, but then you see, and uh, don't we know, Talha, that uh, there is the particular tiny island of the Maldivian main archipelago, which has been acquired by China, and it has been bothering the Indians for a while now. Yes, uh, China has invested
1: every in Maldives, and uh, so, sort of like this, this contestation, this competition is going on. But do
0: you think, Talha, uh, what you've mentioned, you know, these are the things which I didn't read and uh, it's very interesting to hear this from you. Do you think that uh, if um, India, for example, as far as the marine economy is concerned, they're able to uh, increase Maldives' dependence on India and become like the primary uh, uh, import market for Maldives? Do you think that will uh, remove the general perception of the public, or uh, are there grievances? Are they more informed about what the long-term implications are?
1: Uh, I think I I am not uh, I am not well read enough to comment on that. Uh, I'll have to think about it. But from the Maldivian side, uh, in the general public, there is this impression that uh, India. Tries to superimpose itself, uh, uh, superimpose itself in the uh, uh, in the politics and even security matters. Very interesting uh, point. uh, I read this that uh, in 2013, India provided apparently two helicopters to the uh, Maldives. India gave these two helicopters to the Maldivian government, like they have given this Dhania aircraft. And and what happened was uh, this Asia Times has uh, quoted a Maldivian aviation expert and uh, on the condition of anonymity, of course, they haven't named named him or her. So they have said that uh, the Indian choppers that are stationed in Maldives were uh, presented by New Delhi as a gift in two thousand thirteen, and was that gesture was welcomed at that time in Mali, uh, the capital city of Maldives. So uh, at that time, uh, Maldives was expanding its military aviation capabilities, but it lacked, uh, uh, but it lacked these lacked the capabilities. Uh, Indian pilots at that time agreed to operate the equipment until. Uh, the Maldivian personnel could be trained. Exactly. And, and since that time, uh, the uh, the, uh, the Indian, uh, it, it became sort of like an excuse to station their personnel on the Maldivian soil. Another most, more, more interesting point uh, in the same report was that uh, the Indian uh, the national government is also criticised for this, uh, and there is a general perception that the pa- procurement that have been done in the past from the India, uh, from the Indian governments, uh, uh, have proven to be problematic. Uh, they say that the Nasheed government failed to scrutinise Indian helicopter suitability in Maldivian conditions after having agreed to receive the aircraft in uh, uh, in 2010 they these helicopters were unable to fly at at night or uh, even in inclement weather uh, uh, these helicopters were uh, not suitable for flying so this standard uh, equipment it it was maybe it's not substandard equipment but uh, there was this failure to disclose what is to come next the strings that were attached with these uh, with with this uh, gift so uh, this is a general perception in maldives regarding indian government and we uh, need to focus uh, we, we we should focus more on uh, uh, the politics uh, that is uh, happening between both the countries uh, in and in, in perhaps in, in to long uh, long term uh, i think uh this
0: uh, resentment will grow that's an interesting observation and i think from what uh, i've made out from your um, observations is that uh, it might be possible that india wanted intentionally to keep the Maldivian national defense force dependent on its personnel for training and that is why uh, maybe they did not they may not have intentionally imparted that sort of a training so that they could become self-dependent or autonomous. So I think that goes also into the technicalities of the military aviation assets which you mentioned. And again, you see that goes on. It's been more than a decade now. You're talking about you talked about 2010. I'm talking about 2020. After 10 years, if you still need uh, India to finance the functioning of those aircraft you're still letting them pull the strings which goes to show that you may consider india having a waning influence in this particular island country but uh, new delhi has been able to uh, keep uh, a hold on their defense aspect and now it seems that if we talk from the non-defense that is the economic aspect now maybe their intention is because You know, the fact which I mentioned about Maldives, its economic dependency on foreign imports, etc., etc. I didn't have to check out Wikipedia or any trade statistics. The Indian media reports which gave coverage to the ferry service, they mentioned these facts. And I think they were actually talking to the broader Indian public, telling them and maybe informing the business community that Maldives is totally dependent. You have your opportunity here to make them reliant exclusively on uh, Indian origin goods and uh, services. So from both the angles, I think uh, that's their ultimate objective that the string should remain with uh, uh, New Delhi.
1: And uh, see, uh, I I think that uh, this resentment uh, uh, is uh, New Delhi is recognizing that there is some problem with the way we are dealing with the uh, with the with 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 Maldives. So, because uh, this adjudication, this this uh, law that has come up that uh, all the business, all the business activities uh, that 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 have some uh, that that are related to the Indians, or all the uh, investments that will be done by the Indian government, they will be educated according to the Indian law. So, th- this is a very interesting. Uh, development So but Tala, what is the difference what is the difference between indians
0: entering into maldives and being governed by indian law okay and just nearby the americans entering sri lanka and being governed by american law both these island countries have ceded that legal te- sovereignty that uh, the, the principle of sovereignty basically is i think foundationed upon the fact that the host country is able to prosecute or charge people within its territory according to its own laws both of them have actually i mean that part about adjudicating the rights to indian courts that is news for me and that's quite alarming yes it is yes.
1: Um, okay so uh, since we talked about Enderman, uh, I'm sure you must have read this piece that I shared on my uh, Twitter and uh, written by Fatimult uh, Fatimult a Saab, very good piece yes, thank you for sharing uh, it's a very thank good you for sharing piece. okay so uh, uh, Fatimult uh, apparently uh, I have to uh, search search on the internet but, uh, belongs uh, to the uh, Chitradi royal family and he, he is and he, he writes on history uh, issues so i found that, that piece very interesting and i would uh, like you to uh, comment briefly about it because i think that uh, we need to end soon so uh, some comments from you about that piece, for
0: the Convention of Foundings. Yes, um, I think the part about um, the Pakistani leadership of the time, the, the founding uh, leaders who attempted to try to gain control of uh, Andaman Islands. I think that uh, just goes to show you, you know, before you tweeted that article, Believe you me, I am the guy who sits online and I love to read the history about this Indian Ocean region. And for some reason, and I'm particularly thankful to the writer, I could not believe the headline I was reading and then I had to actually open and read it, That yes, Pakistan was interested. We all know that uh, Andaman and Nicobar were initially, you know, they're being sought after by the Japanese. and uh, India successfully did manage to get them and the fact that um, just goes to show you how visionary uh, Pakistan's leadership of the time were. I mean, just imagine the sheer, the impeccable nature of that vision that you started off from mainland India, West Bengal, uh, Delhi and Mumbai and then you go to Karachi and all. But you're thinking about the long term future of Andaman and what its strategic utility could be for Pakistan. I mean, just imagine that sort of leadership over there, that visionary leadership who were looking more than 50 years ahead about what what sort of value it would add to Pakistan's territory. And this just goes to show you that um, while Pakistan was obviously not able to realize that and try to bring Andaman under its fold. Because that were, I think it would have been a logistic, uh, logistical and administrative nightmare in the present scenario with India positioned in between, trying to control the Andamans. I mean, if uh, Bangladesh was still East Pakistan, that would have been another story. But yet again, um, but, but on the Western side, Pakistan was able to secure Gwadar and the Makran Coastal Belt from Oman. So, uh, uh, this actually, this article, if you view it in the proper context, it actually goes to show you that our national leadership of the time, the founding leadership, the founding fathers, uh, the founding uh, Madhuri Millat, they were all thinking uh, uh, from a, from the mindset of that era in which maritime power played also a very important role, which you don't see nowadays. We have all the talk about a blue economy and this and that, but uh, successive leadership since then has not looked into uh, how Andaman could have been an opportunity or even you don't talk about Andaman, talk about Lakshadweep. What is the harm in Lakshadweep? I mean, that is also where, where India had tried to uh, seize the territories and bring it into its fold from uh, the former undivided India. So. I personally would recommend that um, the people uh, watching us and listening to this podcast. Um, Talha was uh, shared this fantastic piece by Fateh Mulk Saab. You should look into it. And now people like me, nobodies, who are looking at all these strategic exercises, military infrastructure being built in animals. how now after more than 70 years of Pakistan's independence, how that is serving as one of the most crucial pivots in deciding great power competition between US and China in this region and how that is something we missed and we didn't focus on adequately as we should have. And I think still we got Makran and we got Aman, the coastal belt. but I think this is a debate which needs to be elaborated in more detail in some other segment. But thanks for sharing that article. That was, that was so refreshing to read. It added a lot of knowledge which I did not have before, and it, it is definitely a must read. Speaking of which, now, since we are in the Western Indian Ocean region, and I think now I, have, I need to move a bit to the north, to this, the northwest, we come to Iran. So my third and final segment for this podcast from my side, The topic which I have chosen is the new naval base constructed by uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC Navy of Iran. So I have collected some figures, I did a bit of geomapping and recently uh, the IRGC Navy, so just to clear for the audience, I won't go into details, Uh, I don't intend to give a lecture to anybody. The IRGC is a totally separate but parallel armed forces prong in conjunction to the state army, the state air force and the state navy of Iran. So you have two prongs. President Hassan Rouhani, he controls, he is the commander of Iranian army, Artesh, Iranian navy, Iranian air force. And then you have the other prong which is directly subservient to the supreme leader of Iran, who is the ideological leader. Mr. Khamenei, and he is the one who controls the IRGC Army and the IRGC Air Force and the IRGC Navy. So these are two separate prongs. That, and obviously the political ramifications of it are different. I think I mentioned this in some other previous uh, podcast of ours or maybe in one of my articles that when you talk about collaboration, uh, for example, yes, the recent Russia-China-Iranian naval exercise which took place a few months ago uh, hosted by Iran near Bandar Abbas port. That was with the Iranian Navy, not IRGC Navy, because uh, I, keeping Russia at a side, Russia doesn't care, but China is very cautious about uh, participating in exercises with IRGC, which could upset uh, Middle Eastern allies. So, But now we have this new naval base. Again, the point why I mentioned this very succinctly is This is an IRGC naval base, which means that, number one, the very name itself suggests it has an aggressive agenda, number one. Number two, it is directed specifically towards uh, U.S. naval adventurism in the region, which they perceive. And obviously now uh, that the um, Israeli-Arab rapprochement has also been taking place there is an increased threat of the Arab-Israeli nexus in conjunction with US Naval Central Command being able to control the entire waterways from Red Sea to Gulf of Aden, to Gulf of Oman, to Persian Gulf, all the way to the Ark. So this base came about. Now, the name of this base, it is at Sirik. It is located in Sirik and this is a coastal Iranian town which is uh, to the east of Strait of Hormuz. Uh, And it is, if you look, it is just across the UAE and Omani territory and it lies just between the divide connecting Persian Gulf and Gulf of Oman, right? So, facing Saudi Arabia uh, and UAE, you have the Persian Gulf and facing Oman and some parts of UAE like Fujairah, you have the Persian Gulf, a very, very important and sensitive maritime route not only for ships but especially commercial marine traffic i did some geo mapping and i just for the sake of uh, public knowledge for the audience listening to this if you just want to have an idea of what is the exact location you can just google it up and enter Sirik, you'll get the map but as far as distance is concerned it is 390 kilometers roughly to the west of chabahar so, it is almost 400 kilometers west of Chabahar, much further than uh, Pakistan's area of the Makran coastal belt. And it is just 114 kilometers east of Bandarabas. So, it is between Bandarabas, which is the main uh, port of Iran, the, where the Iranian Navy is mostly found exercising, and Chabahar. So, IRGC again, you see. They are not utilizing Chabahar. I think they are apprehensive of maybe entangling the uh, Indians and their strategic interests uh, into something which they would not like to be a part of. So that's why they have maybe maybe had set uh, have set up this new base. And this base, since we all know, I don't need to mention this, IRGC commanders, not the Iranian military commanders, the IRGC commanders routinely. I think almost once per week, if you read agencies like the SNEEM News Agency, Meher News Agency, FARS News Agency, they they issue threats to the UE leadership that our rockets can land in Dubai, our rockets can land in Riyadh, our rockets can land in Dammam, our rockets can land in Abu Dhabi, and we you are just at within our reach. And if Israel tries to attack us, we will immediately retaliate. This is in their new statement. It said that um, they will uh, retaliate against the UAE if Israel strikes Iran. So, you know, they form their own strategic chain. So just to give an audience the sense of what actually their distance is. The new naval base at Sirik is just 224 kilometers from Dubai. That is very, very easy for just a basic missile to reach so it's even more close now because people were saying that you know um, i think maybe even pakistan had this point that trying to build the narrative that chabahar could be used as a sort of a strategic base against you know arab countries and trying to you know plate it for <laughs> each other TK. Okay? but i don't think that that's going to work because this new base it is more closer and it is not just close to UAE, it is also close to Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, so the distance from Serik Base to Manama in Bahrain and Damam is almost equivalent. To Manama, it is 656 kilometers. To Damam it is 694 kilometers. I used Google Earth for just a basic, um, and, um, you can say a, a scalar mapping, so just to get a rough idea. So these are just rough estimates. So you can see that Bahrain, uh, the UAE comes within the first. Zone of an easy target. Then you have Oman, but obviously, Oman is a separate story altogether. Then you have Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. And that new naval base is obviously now you have Iran building up its assets. So, what do you think? Are the Arabs not going to Saudi Arabia and the UAE? Don't you think they're going to respond to that in kind? And so, you ask yourself, is this new? Well, Um, It happens that if we move a few months ago, in June 2020, IRGC Navy Commander, Rear Admiral Ali Razad Tangsiri, he said the base is built, I quote, on the request of military leadership, unquote, and would be used for protecting, I mean, this was his claim that this is for protecting Iranian vessels and counter piracy and blah, blah. But interestingly, he says Rear Admiral Tangsiri He says this was built on the recommendation of military leadership, not the political leadership. Why? And why not the regular Iranian Navy? So what he is actually indicating is that this is built on the request of the supreme leader of Iran, keeping in view long-term strategic interests. This has got nothing to do with President Rouhani and his uh, political administration which is an elected government in uh, iran so this is basically mr Khamenei and his regional agenda to create a forward outpost for the irgc navy and the ne- in the next month in july 2020 mr Rear admiral tangsiri re- revealed a few extra nuggets to try to create further suspense among international observers he said that Um, There are underground, underground. I repeat, underground speedboat and missile cities in southern Iran. And he said, he added in the same capacity, he said that IRJC Navy is going to be quote-unquote nightmare for the U.S. So he named the U.S. and he said that we are going to be a nightmare. We have built an underground city, we have underground bunkers, we have speedboats. And obviously, what are speedboats used for? They are used for maritime interdiction operations, special operations. You need to engage in hybrid war. Mm -hmm. So that naval element of a hybrid war, you don't use speedboats in a conventional uh, naval operation. So uh, before I conclude this segment, I would just like to quote uh, the IRGC chief of staff, not the IRGC Navy, the whole entire IRGC chief of staff. uh, Looking, uh, you can basically equate him to maybe the um, Joint Chief or the DG Joint Staff in from Pakistani angle. So IFGC Chief Commander Major General Hussein Salami when he commented upon the new naval base at Sirik, he said, I quote, the country's combat operations, ship operations, reconnaissance, as well as defensive and offensive operations in the Persian Gulf will further develop, unquote. So I think there you have it. So If he himself is mentioning and offensive, it makes it clear that offensive nightmare to the US, you're going to see further con- uh, confrontation and contestations in this region. The question remains while you can talk a lot about Pakistan's interests and this and that, what about Iran? I mean, if the. I'm just curious, you mentioned about conducting a survey on uh, how South Asian countries and Southeast Asian perceive an extra regional actor coming and you know, aiding India and the region, I would like to see a survey that these statements by IRGC leaders, whether they are the Army, Navy or Air Force, are they not going to create complications for India's own ambitions in Chabahar? I mean, how can you exclude that portion and create a bubble while creating implications for other regional countries? Of
1: course. uh... Around four hundred kilometers to the west of Chaba, you are saying that this is an, this is an IRGC base. Uh, I haven't read much about it, but uh, so I'm not uh, so I'm not in the liberty to uh, comment on it uh, as I uh, as I consider best. So I would leave it up to you. Uh, what's your judgment on it? But I th- I also agree that it would create certain complications because. India has certain ambitions uh, uh, with regards to Chaba and having an IRGC naval base in uh, in the proximity of uh, in a in, in radius of 300 to yeah. 300 kilometers it would uh, obviously uh, it would create some sort of distaste, distaste between uh, uh, India and the United States. Uh, another supplementary information for the for those who are listening uh, to this podcast is that uh, the arms embargo uh, on iran that was put in effect by uh, the united nations security council back in 2007 if i am correct uh
0: just i'm unable it. to
1: recall at this point okay okay so the arms embargo was put in effect uh, in two thousand and seven, by the United Nations Security Council, uh, uh, it uh, the it is expiring uh, the eighteenth of October. So, uh, so uh, there, there is this. Uh, r- the Russians have shown their interest uh, in selling S four hundred systems to Iran. So. Uh, According to uh, this uh, ambassador, uh, this Russian ambassador to Iran, uh, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, so I would go with the first name, Levan. Levan has talked about that we will not have any problems in selling uh, escrowing weapons to Iran from October 19. And uh, he has also mentioned that Russia Russia is not concerned with the uh, threats from the United States and uh, the u.s is interestingly talking about uh, how it would how how it will unilaterally snap back in, uh, international sanctions on tehran that are there is a according to them there is a clause in jc uh JCPOA joint comprehensive plan of action that they uh, did back in 2015. Uh, they said there is this clause that would put that would come in effect but uh, uh, this uh, this uh, this utterance of U.S. officials has been uh, re- rejected. Uh, has been uh, rejected by the other permanent members, and yep. uh, so it, 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 it has been. It has not been considered. It has not been taken seriously by U.K., France, Germany.
0: Uh, the Arabs recently gathered together, you know, in uh, earlier in Poland, if you remember, several months yes. ago, and they held that uh, Warsaw conference and then they had, they had one in Bahrain uh, and in which they, uh, the Saudi Arabia was particularly vocal in trying to unite the Arabs in mentioning that whether the US goes ahead with it or not, but the Arabs will try to consistently lobby for another round of uh, arms embargo on Iran. But uh, then again, you know, still that begs the question, you have the Arabs doing what they can and that that tit for tat is, which is going to disrupt the strategic stability in the whole Persian Gulf has been ongoing for many decades and it will continue to do so. But you know, it still, it still, uh, uh, it evades me, it uh, Mm. somehow, uh, it just is, I'm unable to understand or comprehend how, why New Delhi has been so eerily silent on these very provocative statements by IRGC in which, you know, um, they're very clearly trying to uh, they're very clearly mentioning what is the agenda in behind establishing this base or conducting the exercises. And while Jabbar is not too far away, I mean, have they received some sort of guarantees from The other side of Iran, I mean, the ones who are uh, maybe supposedly going to fight with Iran that Chabaha will be kept out of it, it just simply evades me. And I think that silence is something that the international community and especially the United States itself has not sufficiently looked into. It has, during the Obama administration, the United States kept overlooking Iranian uh, transactions with India despite... Uh, those uh, uh, sanctions imposed. And then you have Ma- Michael Pompeo, the Secretary of State, the U.S. Secretary of State, who is very vocal against the CCP and Iranian leadership by name. Yet, they don't see that maybe some sort of uh, Indian assistance, the infrastructure support or other security support in Chabahar could end up being used by IRGC assets how is that not a possibility how is that not going to actually boost because i think talha i think you also came across this very interesting and detailed article it was a very lengthy article a few months ago in which highlighted how the irgc empire is itself a business empire which has amassed billions and billions of dollars i'm not talking about uh, the iranian currency but billions of dollars it's a self sustaining industry basically all mm-hmm. their ex- excursions overseas are for political and economic gains and they have their own defense industrial base as well so how is Iranian invest uh, Indian investment in Iran not going to uh, support the IRGC and its uh, Navy for example during times in which for example another round of press sanctions are imposed the lifeline will act the economic lifeline will actually be provided by India
1: no doubt. No doubt. These are serious concerns. These are, uh, and
0: uh, this, this is something which needs to be looked into. Thank you very much for your time, Talha. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Uh, until next time, goodbye from our side.
1: Goodbye.